As we stand in this room today honoring God's word, would you take a copy of the scriptures and turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Our text today is 2 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. 2 Corinthians 3, beginning in verse 7. Hear the word of the Lord. Now if the ministry of death, chiseled in letters of stone, came with glory, so that the sons of Israel were not able to look directly at Moses' face because of the glory from his face, a fading glory, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness overflows with even more glory. In fact, what had been glorious is not glorious in this case because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was fading away was glorious, what endures will be even more glorious. Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness. Not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel could not look at the end of what was fading away. But their minds were closed. They were veiled. For to this day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains if it is not lifted because it is set aside only in Christ. However, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil remains over their hearts. But, but, let's say that one together. But, whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. We all with unveiled faces are reflecting the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. This is from the Lord who is the Spirit. Let's pray. Our good and holy God, we give you thanks for this Lord's Day. We thank you for a chance to be in this place and we're grateful that you are here among your people. We thank you that you have been faithful to your promise. Lord, we want to hear from you. We need your light in our lives. We need you to direct our steps, guide our, our ways. To this end, Lord, we pray and we ask you to speak. To speak to our hearts that our souls may hear. To speak because your servants are listening. This is our prayer in the mighty name of Jesus. And we pray together saying, amen and amen. Friends, please be seated. The creatives at Walt Disney asked a controversial question, put it on the lips of one of their chief characters. Mirror, mirror on the wall, who is the what? Fairest of them all. Michael Jackson saying, I'm starting with the man in the mirror. I'm asking him to make a change. Those are two modern 
mirrors reflecting truths into our lives or asking questions of us. The ancient Greeks told a cautionary tale of a young guy named Narcissus, beautiful Narcissus. He caught his reflection and was paralyzed because of his beauty. The mirror got him. Years ago, Walker Percy wrote one of the trippiest books that I've ever read on the human condition. It was just a flat, funky book, and it was called Lost in the Cosmos. And throughout their book, that little thought experiments, he would, he would ask us to think about things, to consider some things, to ponder some things. And early in that book, he gave us this thought experiment. He said, imagine you are walking down Madison Avenue behind Al Pacino. Are you with me? Some of you young people don't know who Al Pacino is. He was really cool a while back. Whom you have seen frequently in the movies, but never in the flesh. He's shorter than you thought. His raincoat is thrown over his shoulder, hands in his pocket. He stops to look in the window of Abercrombie and Fitch. His face takes on a characteristic expression, jaws clenched, eyes dark and luminous, like a young Corleone in The Godfather. The sight of Pacino in the flesh, acting like Pacino on the screen, gives you a particular pleasure. Then you become aware that though Pacino is looking at the articles in the window display, he is also checking his own reflection in the glass. This too gives you pleasure, though of a different sort. Explain the difference. Hint, the aesthetic pleasure of seeing an instance, an idol, a symbol, the Pacino in the flesh at Abercrombie's, measure up and conform to the symbol itself, Pacino on the screen, and the different pleasure of seeing the instance, Pacino rescued from the symbol and restored to humor and creatureliness, the self in all its vainglory, individuality, and folly. The first case, oh, there is Pacino acting like Corleone. The second case, oh, there is Pacino acting just like me. <laughs> Have you ever been caught looking at yourself in a mirror? <laughs> yes, you have. Of course you have. We have mirrors stationed around the church buildings, uh, and I catch you looking at yourself in the mirror all the time, <laughs> whether you know it or not. Some of you, I would have thought, had given up, you know. <laughs> but there you are. There you are like Al Pacino on the streets of New York, wiping down the hair and checking the tie. We've all been caught there. It's a human experience. I remember as a teenager being caught in the mirror. A lot of teenagers just practice singing like a rock and roll band. Well, I preached my first sermon when I was 15. And, uh, and so when you preach your first sermon at 15, you've never even heard of a homiletics class. <laughs> I never met anybody like Scott Gibson when I was 15 years of age. What I had was, was TBN. <laughs> I had TV preachers, you know. I watched guys like Rod Parsley. Here was a guy who had just marched back and forth across the platform like a tiger in a cage. He was like the heavy metal version of a preacher. He'd come down on the front pew and stand on the pew and shout over the heads of the people, and I watched that. And from time to time as a 15-year-old learning how to preach, watching people on television, I would just march across my bedroom with a fake microphone in my hand. 
And once or twice, my little brothers or my parents would come in and see me watching myself in the mirror. professor of homiletics named Calvin Miller used to pastor in Omaha, Nebraska. And he was in a large hospital early one morning going to see a congregant who was there in the hospital and he passed by the x-ray room. And the x-ray techs who operated that x-ray room had a good sense of humor and a passing knowledge of literature. One of them had taken a quote from Hamlet and placed it in a, in, a little, in a little frame and put it outside the door of the x-ray room. It's the scene from Hamlet where Hamlet's talking to Gertrude and he says, Come, come and sit you down. You shall not budge. You go not till I set you up a glass where you see the inmost part of you. <laughs> Doesn't that work on the outside of an x-ray room? Well, what a question. Here's the glass. Perhaps the glass allows you to see those things that are deepest inside of you. Ever since we've had mirrors, mirrors have been used to help us see deep things about what it means to be a human. Whether it's Disney or Narcissus or Walker Percy or Mirror, Mirror on the Wall or Hamlet, the question lingers for all humans. What sort of thing am I? As we began this message series last week, we were reminded from this text of Scripture that we are creatures. That God is God. He made us. We did not make ourselves. And this is good news because He is a good God. And today, the Apostle Paul says to all of us, from the text of Scripture, he says, come, come, sit you down. Let's hold up a glass and see what is on the inmost part of you. As a follower of Christ, Miller would have a see, Paul would have a see, that we were created in the likeness, in the image of Christ. We were made by him. And for him, we were made to be the icons of God on this earth. For a few moments this morning, I'd like for us to look at the pages of Scripture, ask the question, what does it mean to be created in the image of God? There's, a, there's the image of God in creation. This is what we share with all of humanity. There's the image of God cast in confusion. That's our human condition touched by our sin and rebellion. And that's the image of God in Christ. Humanity as it should be. Being redeemed and saved and transformed for God's glory and for our good. So for a few minutes, let's look in the mirror and see if we can see the image of Christ. First, the image of God in creation. Turn with me with you in the Bible to Genesis chapter 1 creation narratives we have a beautiful telling a beautiful celebration of a God of creation and in that text we begin reading in verse 26 then God said let us make man in our image according to our likeness they will rule the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky 
the livestock, all the earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created the male and female. He blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. And here we're introduced to the image of God in creation. Biblical scholars and theologians have argued over the years, what does it mean fundamentally to believe in the image of God? What does it mean that we have been made in God's image? I don't know that a fight is necessary because I believe many of these positions can be harmonized and brought together to give us a full picture, at least a hint. Perhaps the deep mystery is beyond our full and complete comprehension, but there are pictures, there are ideas in Scripture, what it means to be created in the image of God. The first of those we see is dominion. You see the responsibility of the man and the woman over the earth. God has placed them in a place of responsibility. Psalm 8, that great, great psalm begins by praising God. And when you get to verse 3, you have the psalmist who has looked at the stars. Have you ever, you ever been like far west Texas where it's black as velvet and you just can see as many stars as there are anywhere? And you just feel something when you see that kind of thing. And the psalmist had been looking at the stars and he says, when I observe your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you set in place, what is man that you remember him? The son of man that you look after him. You made him a little less than God and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him Lord over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all the sheep and oxen, all the animals in the wild, birds of the sky, fish of the sea, passing through the currents of the sea. Oh, God. Oh, God. Who are we that you would put in responsibility? C.F.D. Mould once said, perhaps the most satisfying of the many interpretations, both ancient and modern, of the meaning of the image of God is man, which sees it basically as being responsible. <laughs> being responsible. So what does it mean to be created in the image of God? It means God has made us to be responsible agents on this earth. But maybe there's something else to this, and likely there is. So there's this notion of dominion, but also this idea of communion. That the image of God reflects that we were made to have a subject-to-subject -subject relationship with God. An I-thou relationship with the Lord. Theologians who take this tact point out that this is almost always spoken of in conjunction with, with man creating man and woman. That they're in this relationship with each other, alike yet different. And, and face to face they, they confront one another. And in that confrontation and in that life together, there is something of communion that represents the image of God. That we are made different but in some way alike to the Lord. And the image of God means not only that we have been entrusted with responsibility, but that we've been invited into communion with God. 
Frank Stagg says to make sense of all of this stuff, you have to, you have to at least think that the image of God and man could mean love. Stagg said it like this, although the Genesis story in Psalm 8 point to dominion as the point of likeness between mankind and God, a case could be made for love as the point of likeness between mankind and God. This cannot be proof text readily, but it has a strong biblical base. Scripture can say that God is love, 1 John 4, 8, but it never does it say that God is dominion. It can ascribe power and dominion to God, but it never says that God is power or dominion. God is more than love, and Scripture would never say that love is God, but that God is love reflects solid biblical perspective, and it's no isolated text. Dominion and love are not antithetical. They belong together. Maybe just maybe the image of God means that we've been granted responsibility and called into communion. Maybe it means we've been loved with a deep, eternal, powerful, gritty love by God and have been called on by God to love him back and to love each other out of reverence for him. Or maybe it includes the idea of witness. Rebecca Hayes, Old Testament professor at Truett, you know Rebecca. She says that the word, same word for idol. And what does an idol do? An idol stands to represent a God. You remember those, those Hebrew boys on the plains of Dura? They refused to bow down when they were pressured to, to that idol that had been erected on the plains. Well, some say that idol might have just been a statue of old Neb himself. Showing out and showing off and pointing, witnessing to his imperial power. Jürgen Moltmann says the second commandment, the one against making idols, he said the second commandment protects and preserves for man his dominion over creation. For man alone is the image and likeness of God. Dorothy Sayers, when she talks about this, she goes back to that story in the Gospels where the question comes to Jesus, should we pay taxes or not? Should we render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's? And he says, give me a coin. Let me see it. He stood there with a coin. I have a dollar coin. And on its, on its face is President Martin Van Buren. He's not a beautiful man, friends. <laughs> He's kind of wild looking. But Jesus would say, hey, look at Caesar there. There's his image right there on that coin. He said, you render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And these sayers made this point. And what holds the image of God? You do. And I do. Therefore, God has called us to render ourselves to him. Because we were made by him. And we were made for him. We were made in his image. The image of God in creation. 
But friends, it didn't take long for the image of God to be marred and tarnished by our sin and rebellion. So we have to, to make, to make this make sense, we have to at least address the image of God in confusion. When you go to Genesis 9, verse 6, in Genesis 9, 6, there is, there is a, a, a command not to murder, not to kill. And the reason for this, and this is after the story of the fall and sin entering human life and all of that, but there is this, this admonition not to murder. And the language is because men and women created in the image of God. Years later, James, in his little epistle, in James chapter 3, verse 9 and 10, he says, out of the same mouth comes blessings to God and cursing humans. You see, James never heard the little line, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words may never hurt me. James believed that you shouldn't murder because people were created in the image of God and you shouldn't pick up sticks and stones and stones would take his life, by the way. But he also says, watch how you talk to one another. Because everybody you meet is created in God's image. God made us to be responsible and God made us to commune with him and others and God made us to love and God made us to bear witness but our sin touches all of that and we forget who made us and for what reason and so into this confused earth Christ came and this is where it gets really really beautiful this is where the world as it is meets the world that God is making when we see the image of God in Christ. Colossians chapter 1, 15 says of Jesus Christ, He is the image of the invisible God. He is perfect love. He is perfect responsibility. He is perfect communion. He is perfect witness. He is the icon of the Lord in the earth. He is the image of the invisible God. And his saving grace flows into the lives of broken people to restore and transform us afresh into the image, into the image of God, into the image of Christ. Karl Barth said, what he is in himself he is not for himself alone. He is the image of God so that we can again live on this earth as the icons of God. Romans chapter 8 verse 29 says, Those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Colossians 3.10 and Ephesians 4.24, which are exactly the same verse. They're copy and pasted verses of Scripture. He says, to put on the new self, the one created according to God's likeness. And this great text that we started out with this morning, the, the one that Dale Moody calls the Pentecostal midrash of Exodus 24, 24. 
He says, look, in the first covenant, the one that called us out and made us responsible, the one of death and condemnation, the one, the one that declared us guilty before a a, a glorious God. Even in that covenant, he said, there was glory. There was glory from God. And it was beautiful. And it was awe-inspiring. It was so wonderful that when Moses came down with the bloom of glory on his face, the people couldn't stand the glory of his countenance. So he put a mask on his face. He made the CDC happy. He just covered up his mug. To mediate between the glory and a broken people. And Paul is so bold to say, when someone turns to Christ, the veil of confusion and the veil of protection keeping us from the glory of God is lifted. And he says, now with unveiled faces, we look in the mirror and surprise of surprise, shock of shocks. We look in the mirror seeking the answer to the question, what does it mean to be truly human? We look in that glass and we see Christ. And by his spirit, he transforms us. He shapes us through a new self that comes through saving grace. He transforms us into the likeness of the dear son. And the image is restored. And so is the point of life. Paul would say in chapter 4, verse 1. By God's mercy, therefore, we have this ministry. What ministry? The ministry of being an icon of Christ in this earth, of living out the implications of being created and redeemed in the image of God. The ministry of responsibility and communion and love and witness come come sit you down budge not look at the glass let us see the inmost part of you my question on this Lord's day is have you in in the living of your days you in your life you in your past you in your biography and history has there been a moment where you have turned to the Lord for the veil to be lifted and life to be lived in Christ. You were made by him and for him. And in our sin, Christ has come to do for us what we could not do for ourselves, to restore what was marred and to transform us into his likeness. Have you turned to him? You say, yes, man, I've done that, and I'm thankful to God for his grace. I'm one of his, and he is mine. Are you putting on the new self? Are you purposely, with intention, following after God, 
and asking his spirit to transform you and to make progressively more clear to your neighbors and those you work with and your family members and strangers an icon of witness to the love of God and his righteousness. You were created in the image of God and the restoration of that image is the goal of your salvation. Will you follow today? Let's stand, let's sing, let us commit our ways afresh to the Lord. If you need to make public decisions, things that have been made in the privacy of your heart, you feel God would have you make them publicly today. As we sing, following this prayer, we invite you to come. Lord, we thank you so much for a chance to gather in this place, and we thank you that you, by your Spirit, stir us in this church. Lord, I pray for those who are here, who are watching, who are listening, or if there's anyone here who has never turned to you, for life and salvation and hope. I pray that they would begin that journey even this hour. Lord, those of us who know you, all of us are candidates for something. And if you've called us to a step of faith in our journey that would involve confessing that in this place, Lord, I pray that you would baptize us with courage and purpose in our hearts. May we honor you as we sing. May we honor you as we live. We pray in Christ's name. Amen and amen.